Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. And today I'm excited to bring you a book that I personally have a lot of research interest in, and uh, I think a lot of you are going to get a lot out of this book. Uh, And this is Asia, the Next Higher Education Superpower. And this was published by the Institute of International Education jointly with the American Institute for Foreign Study Foundation. Uh, And this was from, uh, this is from uh, Rajika Bandari. Uh, IIE Deputy Vice President for Research and Evaluation, and Dr. Uh, Alessia Lefebure, uh, who I promised I would, I would not mess up her last name, so if I did, she can uh, maybe let us know. And she is with me here today, right now, uh, here at uh, high above uh, uh, Columbia University in, in this uh, great overlooking uh, uh, Morningside Heights. Uh, so, Alessia, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me with you. And uh, I just, maybe can we get started? This book brings together uh, different researchers, uh, professionals from all different kinds of fields. Can you maybe talk about uh, sort of the, the joint uh, work between yourself and uh, Rajika and, and how that kind of came together? And then maybe uh, going further into sort of uh, how this came together and how some of these authors, uh, how you found some of these authors. Yes, Sure. I I joined Columbia University in 2011 and proposed a new course in the School of International Public Affairs on higher education policies in Asia. And it was, of course, a new course and even, I would say, a new topic as such. And in my course, I try to bring the students to understand uh, the rational behind most of the current reforms in higher education system throughout Asian countries. And I invite every year um, other colleagues, scholars, and some professionals in higher education. And I have invited repeatedly uh, um, someone from people from International uh, Institute of International Education, IIE, because... Uh, this institution is really a, one of the major players in opening American universities to the, to the world and to the international. And that's, that was my first contact with them. And uh, later on, uh, about a year ago, um, after having heard about what I was doing in my class, the idea came from them to translate sort of some of the findings in, of, of the class into a book. Uh, with the idea that what we were discussing in the class could be very relevant for people who work in higher education in the United States uh, and even beyond. Um, I guess the reason for them is that um, there is a tendency in, in Western Europe, in the United States, in, place, in places where higher education is already very well established and has become a sort of model for the rest of the world, to consider that the rest of the world is simply catching up and to 
evaluate their changes and transformation uh, in, a, in a sort of simplistic way in terms of where do they stand uh, and what is the distance between us and them. And uh, through my professional practice and my 15 years experience of working with higher education institutions throughout Asia, I can see that there is something else going on. Um, in, and, and that is what, what we wanted together with IAE and myself wanted to bring to the attention of the community working in higher education, both scholars, uh, uh, leaders of universities, but even now new players who can think about higher education in Asia as a market or as a place for business opportunities. So we worked together with Rajika Bandari, who is one of the vice presidents at IAE, and, and she's in charge of, um, in particular, something very important that IAE produces, which is the Open Door. <clears throat> they produce the statistics, and uh, they, they diffuse to the community a number of very, very interesting data showing the evolution of the flows of students uh, in and out the United States and with the country approach. So we have a lot of information every year through this report about the trends of the student mobility, right? So that was a very interesting starting point. Uh, but then, of course, we wanted to uh, open up the discussion much uh, uh, beyond the student mobility. We wanted to go into practices. We wanted to see, at the same time, case studies of individual institutions. We wanted to see national initiatives. We wanted to understand what kind of regional initiatives are taking place, how this is relevant to what is called the global trends, and what do we learn from that. So I simply put together um, my own list of uh, contexts, which are mainly scholars uh, that I use in my syllabus, just the reference of the right. readings for my students, right. but people that I also know personally, like Simon Marginson. And uh, we simply asked them, if they wanted to contribute, and the same did IAE with their own network of experts, and uh, and I have to say, and we had a very good uh, rate of response. Uh, most of them were very interested. We have tried to <clears throat> privilege uh, unheard voices, like we haven't really asked too many of the usual suspects, mm -hmm. <laughs> like people that are always. Um, invited to comment on higher education at the international level from an American perspective. Right. We, have, we, we thought that this is already available mm -hmm. for discussion, that there are some people that are always there. And we also launched a call for papers in order mm -hmm. to have a couple of young scholars. For example, right. Miguel Lim, uh, who wrote a wonderful paper on the rankings, is a, a relatively young scholar who is now based in Denmark, but with Filipinos origins who studied in the UK. And I think we wanted also to, to let these people who are the product of the higher education uh, in Asia uh, and, and it, its internationalization to express also their, their point of view. So I would say it's a very nice combination of a multiple um, group of people who express from very different perspective. Um, each of them um, has uh, is bringing something different, and I and I would say that the added value of the book is the is the 
the ensemble. It's, it's really putting together all these things to have a sense of the variety of the initiatives, the, the number of initiatives, and uh, have a sense of the momentum that something big is going on in, in different countries in Asia. Okay, yeah, fantastic. I think you really get the sense of that just looking at some of the authors throughout from various uh, disciplines and, and not just necessarily academia, but maybe some of the practitioner world as well. So that's a, a nice representation that you might not really get from uh, all other books where it might just be sort of mostly from uh, a group of sort of prestigious academics, uh, although you do have some of those as well with, you know, Philip Alt back in there. Uh, so that's really nice. Um, if you could, I think you also try to have a mix of, you know, it's, it, this, the title is, is Asia, uh, colon. So uh, if you could, you know, how did you really narrow down uh, where to focus on with, with some of the countries? Uh, I think I get a sense that, you know, you didn't want to make this just about uh, China in general, which is, you know, one of the hottest sort of higher education or even education uh, places in, in um uh, I guess in higher education right now, international higher education, uh, and you really wanted to get a sense of these other places, these smaller countries. I, I think you, Vietnam, Malaysia. Um, so, can you kind of talk about sort of how you uh, chose for the focus of, of maybe uh, some of the book? And in the first half is more of a general uh, sort of a general uh, landscape, and then the, the second half is more of a uh, focused in. So, can you kind of talk about that uh, dichotomy a bit, or what, what went into that? Yes, we, so there, you can find a number of books uh, about higher education in Asia, and most of them are a collection of case studies, country-based. Most of them are focusing on a reform, a particular reform, addressing maybe a specific issue in a particular country from an expert of that country, and then you have uh, the whole. Um, some, what we wanted to do is something different. Of course, not every article addresses Asia as such, because Asia as such is not really relevant in, in, in our discussion, in the sense that Asia <clears throat> is not a region predefined uh, or a region that would be um, under a sort of a transnational organization that would regulate or, or impulse any change. Um, we are not talking about the European Union. We are not talking about the United States. Um, it's not even a federation. There are, of course, a number of international organizations where some of the Asian countries are members, but uh, none of them is really in charge of uh, higher education. So, and. There is nothing like a single system in Asia or a single region. Yet, there are common points and there are, there are very similar ingredients, I would say, if I can take the metaphor of the cooking, um, that we find repeatedly in each of these Asian countries. And that very interesting point is that these are common to very advanced economies, such as Korea or Japan, who have been there in higher education for decades, and more uh, new players, newcomers, uh, such as Vietnam or Malaysia. So what are these ingredients? These ingredients would be the fact that um, the, the development of higher education is highly connected 
with, uh, on the one hand, the rapid economic growth, which allows uh, spending on higher education. Uh, the, se- the second ingredient is um, a growing middle class, even if the concept of middle class might be challenged by the sociologists and and we could go deeper in the conversation on this, but let's say that I call here middle class uh, the class of people who aspire for their children to a high level of instruction and education. So let's say that the demand for higher education in all those countries is growing. Most of those countries experience at the same time, with the exception of India, a demographic pressures. That is to say that they anticipate with a different calendar, of course, a shortage of young people. And at the same time, we have the demand for higher education. And and finally, all of these countries, they need to enhance their capacity to produce innovation that would feed the economic growth in the sense that they know that they don't want to import innovation, technological innovation from the West, from other countries. They want to be they, are, they have the ambition of becoming self-sufficient. Of course, you might argue that countries like Japan and Korea, they have been doing innovation for, for ages already. Yet, because of the demographic pressure and because of the international mobility, they fear that they will lose uh, all those PhD uh, that could uh, bring the innovation mm-hmm. in because there are less and less. Just, the population is, is shrinking. And, and the few that are there might now be tempted to go and study elsewhere than in Japan or in Korea. So in a way, they are facing, for very different historical reasons, the same problem that might face China, not because there is a shortage or because they go abroad, but simply because the capacity was not there, the local institutions, they were not able to provide this kind of very high-level education in order to produce research and innovation. So if we put together all these trends that are common, we see that that higher education in those Asian countries is is at the core of their economic development. It's very strategic. And this is something that we have not been facing necessarily in Europe or in the United States at the same time. Uh, where the higher education developed independently from, historically, from the economic pressure to produce innovation. That is something that is happening now. Mm -hmm. There is a sort of consciousness of this, that the higher education was already there, already well developed, a system in place, etc. Whereas Mm -hmm. in Asia, it's, it's, what we find interesting, it's, it's, happening all at the same time. So we have tried to ask our authors, to uh, highlight some of the indicators uh, in with local approaches or with case study approaches or just with a sort of transnational approach, a regional, um, things that might be indicators for us to, to tell us attention. Pay attention to what's mm-hmm. happening there. It is interesting. It, it is relevant. Right. Yeah. And I think you, you sort of got to it as well in, in this idea of sort of state-driven yes. higher education institutions, which the landscape in the West right now is is com- pull back as much as you can, or at least that's the, kind of the mindset, I think, that we're seeing in, in Europe and in, in the United States as well. And Europe and, and Asia seems to be going in, in the complete sort of opposite direction, where it's in bed as much as you can, potentially, with, with the government, especially on the elite level, uh, where, they're, where they're investing um, 
considerable amount of money into their their higher education. Absolutely right. What we what we find interesting is that uh, the relation with the private funding appears to be very different. Whereas in most of the European countries, and once again, I, we are very general. Sure. Here. Not every <laughs> European country has, has followed the same path. But whereas most of the European countries are now celebrating the virtues of the private-public partner, mm-hmm. private partnership, and there is a, a state that is um, funding less and less, and asking institutions to find their own funding in mm. the private sector and celebrating the efficiency and the managerial the culture and a sort of push towards a more uh, market-driven system mm-hmm. um, the way it is already very much uh, in the United States. In Asia, of course, the state cannot afford the upgrade of the whole education system in a given country, but there is a, a clear... Um, <clears throat> This definition of the role, like there is a, a, at the same time, the market is open for private initiative, very much so, uh, in, even in India now. Uh, but in China, that is true. In, in, in Japan and in Korea, that was already there uh, before. Uh, so the private sector is blossoming. But the elites, the strategic universities, the one that will produce the research and innovation, they receive, they are often public national, and they receive a lot of funding from the government. So there is a sort of uh, definition of the role of each of them, mm-hmm. the competencies, but what is what is very different is that the core is heavily funded by the states because there is this, uh, really, once again, a consciousness that this is very key for the whole country. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and I think an, another interesting aspect is sort of the, the legacy of colonialism, which can really never be overlooked and, and its impacts uh, onto all sectors, I think, of society um, in Asia. But specifically with higher education, uh, you might go to a university, you know, walk, go to the Tsinghua University and see what's going on in, 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 in China, and, you, and you'll say, this looks like very similar to, to I could walk around uh, Penn State University or some university over here. Uh, I, same thing as in Korea or, or other Asian countries. Can you maybe talk about how the higher education sector uh, is sort of has adopted the Western style university? Uh, and is there maybe another sort of development path potentially uh, of, a, of an Asian higher education, uh, I guess, pathway or, or maybe I'm not using the best terms, but if you if you could kind of describe uh um, is, is this going to be the same of what we have over here? Or it's probably similar now, but you know, if you could maybe see if, if any differences. Yes. I am always extremely cautious when using the word Western uh, <laughs> because there is no one single mm. influence from the West or just from the abroad. Uh, what is very interesting to see in most of the Asian countries is that there is, a, of course, the colonial period, but if you if you look carefully at their history, it's much more uh, diverse and, and mixed than it could simply be just by watching and saying Hong Kong is British, or you know, Taiwan was Japanese, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has always been for the past two centuries a, a very interesting combination of different influence. Let's mm-hmm. take the case of China, for example. Um, China 
has had uh, the first universities like like um, the one that we know, uh, Fudan or Tsinghua. They have clearly been created with, let's say, uh, Tsinghua with an American influence. Mm -hmm. It was created in 1911. Uh, with the money from the Boxer Revolution, and it was created to become a sort of prep to then send the best students to the United States. So the, the model was liberal art education. But today, it's a sort of technological university, science-oriented. It was not the case in the very beginning of the creation. Then if you follow the history of China, you see that <clears throat> uh, when the Communist Party took the power in the first years, there was a sense that they should imitate the Soviet model to implement the planned economy that was their model. So, in the first year of, of the in the first year of the fifties, let's say, there is a strong uh, circulation of uh, students, faculty, experts from from the Soviet Union to China, and and the reverse. Um, the, the Russia is sending plenty of teachers to teach Russian, but also the universities um, under Mao University are transformed and made very, very specialized and very much science and technology oriented. So there is a sort of a first influence from the United States, very strong influence in the 20s from the Japanese, and then a sort of Soviet Union influence. Then China is taking its distance from in the late 50s from the Soviet Union, so adapting the model to the new um, imperative of the Communist Party rule uh, that leads slowly, slowly in the, in the 60s to really the closure of the universities with the idea that, that students should learn from peasants. And then in 78, when, when China opens up again, the, the universities start again, and they start, if you look at the reforms from the 80s to now, which have, are really numerous, it's a mix of influence from all over the world. Um, China has this capacity to be very open in terms of learning from the West. The West, I include the West, not only the West, I would say that Japan is still something that is very much of a reference. But, but there is this freedom in China, in Singapore, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong. There is a sort of ideological freedom in the sense that they are free to um, pick up what is relevant for the country without necessarily adopting the whole system. So when we say that, that Tsinghua, Beida, and Fudan look like American universities, I would say yes and no. They have some of the ingredients that make them visible, and clear mm. to a Western observer in the sense that they have adopted like the names of the masters, the structure of the, of the studies, they have a tenure track like mm -hmm. here. So if you are a foreigner and you stay just at superficial and you look at the appearance, it looks very much like a Western mm -hmm. system. When you go deeper into the content, uh, it becomes much more complicated mm. to say what is the influence. Right. Right? right. So there is a lot of freedom... In, in the choice of the models, mm -hmm. but a very strong adaptation. Sure. And I would say that this is true for almost every country mm -hmm. in Asia. Okay, absolutely. And, and definitely find more of that, uh, I think, uh, throughout the publication uh, from all sorts of different countries as well. Uh, if we could maybe, though, keep, keep moving along and talk about sort of the, the quality control as these systems expand, uh, how are they making sure that students or, or the institutions are actually 
uh, up to, to certain standards or quality. And I know it's there's obviously going to be a variation across uh, all of the, the entire region, but is, is there a general sense of, of how, how it's happening, or is there a specific example that's maybe a country that's doing it better than, than the others, or, or maybe worse than the others, potentially? The question of quality is, once again, um, a very large question that has uh, a lot of sub-questions <laughs> sure, sure. inside. Um, I would say that here we need really to make a distinction between Asian countries whose, whose higher education system has been there and well-established for years, mm-hmm. as opposed to the most recent comers with the higher education that it's really... Uh, blossoming mm-hmm. since maybe 10, 15 years. Um, the first thing I would say is that, of course, quality is a concern for every single country, the government and the higher education institution themselves and the agencies who are supposed to oversee. Nobody is, um, there is no country where there is no much discussion about quality insurance simply because we are on a market and the student themselves they are uh, the first who are uh, asking for quality. Mm -hmm. And the job market has to recognize the quality. So, of course, everybody would like to have a higher education system with the best quality control. Uh, On the other hand, uh, what is common to all these countries is that the system is developing very fast. So there's a pace of development in terms of numbers, in terms of reforms, the changes, introducing new curricula that makes the quality control a bit difficult to implement uh, just because of the, of the, of the pace and the, and the size. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the, the book is not celebrating the higher education in <laughs> Asia as being already uh, the best in the world or uh, very advanced uh, that has solved all the problem far from that. The, the different chapters point all those weaknesses, quality control being one, especially in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, government are, for the moment, very keen about uh, fraud, corruption, plagiarism issues, uh, and the quality itself, it depends what we mean. Right. Right. Uh, the, the students are very concerned about the prestige of the degree, much more than the quality, in the sense that uh, what, what, what's important for them, uh, if you are a student in Asia, you choose a university in Asia only if uh, this can be a strong added value for your right. professional career, your network. And so if uh, the quality relates to this in the sense that, that the name needs to be uh, recognized uh, by employers, uh, academia, international rankings, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of these countries, they'll have, a, they'll have domestic rankings and everyone knows like which one is the best of the couple, you know, the, the top few, uh, you know, Tsinghua, yes. Beida, China, uh, Sky in uh, Seoul National, uh, Korea and, and, and Yonsei in, in Korea. Uh, so there's always this idea of which ones, which ones are the ones that you have to get into. And then now these international rankings of where you're sort of comparing across, not just your own country, not just in the region, but also in the entire world. And I think that kind of maybe brings us to an idea of, of maybe what, what we're looking for in this term of like superpower. If we can kind of talk about that idea in itself, uh, what kind of goes into that? Is it that 
the, this nation, this, these groups of nations or this region as a whole is now, uh, maybe not competing, but competing on some level with, with, um, Europe, Asia or Europe and, and United States or, or what, what sort of goes into that, into that term and, uh, what, what was your idea there? Um, of course, the same way as we believe that there is no such a system as an Asian one, of course there is no superpower such as an Asian superpower. Yet we do observe and believe that this region of the world is going to be very influential. So I would say that the superpower relates to the, the concept of influence okay. uh, in terms of higher education. What do we mean? We mean that higher, what's happening in higher education uh, and research mm-hmm. in, in Asian countries cannot be neglected. Mm-hmm. And that even very well-established um, Western higher education institutions now need to work with them, need to relate somehow to those Asian countries and through their higher education institutions. Why so? Because for many reasons, the behavior of students have changed. The way they choose their um, uh, universities for their studies, the way they go back and forth between academia, the job market, etc., is, of course, extremely different today than it used to be 20 years ago. And, and for students today, there is not such a clear... Of course, they relate to rankings, but there is not such a clear ranking, a hierarchical ranking between the, the West and Asia. Uh, if you look at many international initiatives in Asia, you'll see that there is a high number of non-Asian students who today need to spend a few years in Asia because simply because of the global economic growth that is taking place in all these countries. And so a young person today uh, easily imagine that at one point of this or, or, or her life will have to relate to Asia mm-hmm. in terms of business or whatever the professional sure. activity will be. So it's not rare now to, to see that, for example, students, they choose... Uh, a country for the bachelor, and a second country for graduate studies, mm-hmm. maybe a third country for an internship, and then maybe once they work, they will go back for executive mm-hmm. education in another country. So Asia, just simply because it's a major economic player, mm-hmm. and in that respect we can talk about Asia, because this is really common to, it's not only China, most of the Asian countries sure. have become uh, important economic powers. They have an economic growth that creates jobs, and they are today much more attractive than most of the European countries mm-hmm. for a young person. So it means that um, studying experiences or internship experience that takes place in Asia are going to become a sort of uh, norm. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Western universities, they can decide to ignore that. They can just let the students go and shop on the market, they can also decide to partner mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and build some kind of joint path, dual degrees, uh, or not necessarily with a branch campus abroad, because uh, the point is not that the American university, they, they arrive in a place where there is nothing. There are already a lot of interesting things. So I believe that it's more in terms of shift, shifting their... Uh, the way they look at those Asian universities mm-hmm. in a different way, 
uh, and think about more partnership, collaboration, synergies, and alliances rather than just uh, seeing them as a pool of potential students. Right. Well, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right, and I, and I hope you're right as well. Uh, as someone who has a, a degree from Yonsei University in Seoul, uh, I was one of those students, you know, who went went abroad, and that really uh, shaped everything that I'm doing now as well. So, I, if anyone's listening, I, I encourage them to take to take that advice uh, because I, I don't think I don't think you'll regret it, and you'll see that you know from from the book in this conversation that uh, that it really is the future, at least in in terms of. Uh, Connections and influence in, in all different sectors, not just you know, not just education and, and especially business for sure. Um, I guess if we could maybe kind of wrapping up, uh, do you have any sort of last words or or if you can maybe comment on how this has been received potentially? Uh, if any administrators or schools in in the United States or Europe have have uh, have talked to you about this or. Um, have had any comments on, on this uh, um, sort of idea of the next superpower in Asia? Um, la- my last, yeah. Um, the most common comment that we have received is uh, that we are probably, this is the first book that doesn't uh, consider Asia as a competitor. We are very clearly writing in our, in our first chapter, introductory, we, we write clearly there is no race. There is no race. And the point is not to compare uh, and to ask ourselves, are we threatened? Uh, are we declining uh, as opposed to them? Um, this, this book is really opening a conversation about uh, mutual knowledge, about uh, being more interested in what's going on there, observing more carefully, and perhaps be creative in terms of uh, what kind of collaboration and partnership. One of the one of the other messages of the book, uh, which is um, addressed clearly in the introduction and it's underlying in all the other chapters, is that of course higher education at the global level is undergoing a transformation where some newcomers are coming who are not higher education institutions. Mm-hmm. We are, because of the technological changes, because of the business model changes, we have now players who are private sector, uh, philanthropy foundations, other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the play field in Asia could be also an interesting way to observe how these newcomers are take, taking up uh, an important position in, in higher education. I just uh, leave this with two examples. Mm-hmm. Um, one would be the Schwarzman Scholar Program, which is not addressed in the book precisely as such, but I, uh, it, it tells us a lot about what's going on in, in Asia. So the Schwarzman Program program uh, scholarship is is a scholarship that has been initiated by Mr. Schwarzman, who is um, an American businessman who felt the need to do something in order to have more young persons in the world, future leaders, to interact with China 
be able to understand China, um, build a network, um, and in the future be able to work with China or in China in a in a much more um, in an easier way and with a lot of understanding. So he decided to create a fellowship. It's the model is the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, but uh, so the, the scholarship are for young, brilliant future leaders who come from all over the world, Chinese, Americans, not only, could be from the rest of the world. And he decided to partner with Tsinghua University in China uh, and offer a sort of a graduate education which combines administration, law, and business. The interesting thing to notice for us is that he didn't go and ask for an American university to be the partner. Mm-hmm. You know, so this initiative is taking place only with a Chinese university, and uh, and of course uh, the help of the government. And and he created a foundation to, for the funding. But um, it's very interesting to observe that here we have a private sector player, nonprofit, and an, a local university. So it tells us a lot. Mm. He didn't feel the need to have on board an Ivy League university with him for this specific project. The second example that we could look carefully in the next at in the next years is Minerva. Uh, so here we have an, an an initiative in America of a university that is innovating in the sense that it's recruiting very high profile. Uh, to offer a, a different kind of college experience because there is a social life, there is a network, there is uh, a space, but there is no professors. All the teaching is done online. That is to say that there is a sort of bet on the future that students, when they go to college, they look for a network, an experience of diversity, a discussion with other young person, uh, very high level like them, so it has to be selective. But the teaching can be done online. It's not important that the teacher is actually uh, a resident, rather, of the, a part of the physical experience. If the, so the first cohort is starting in September. If the experience is successful, that opens a boulevard of opportunities in Asia. Right. Because today, uh, and the, the only strong weakness of, of Asia is the fact that they don't have an academic job market as competitive as the one in the United States. The best faculty today, they are still here. For a number of reasons, the, the job market is in the United States. Today, Asian university they might have visiting professors, but in terms of permanent full tenure people, they are usually returnees. So Chinese in China, Japanese in Japan, Korean in, in Korea, and, and so on. If the Minerva experience is proven successful, then they could become really very attractive at Asian universities with online education that could allow them to integrate high-level teaching and faculty from the rest of the world and just offering all the rest, the cultural experience, the network, etc. So I would think that this these two very recent phenomena are... Um, sort of may, may be possible indicators of major transformation in Asia. Okay. Well, we'll definitely uh, be looking looking for those. And just a, a final question that we always ask on the network. Uh, you know, you just got done with this book, uh, you know, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, but, but I know there's always things that are next. So w- what are you working on next, uh, research or 
or just in general projects, anything like that? Do you have anything that uh, might be of interest? Um, I'd be very interested in exploring the African situation. Mm -hmm. uh, I've already started conversations about that. That is to say that um, in Africa, a lot of things are changing as well. Uh, and uh, again, the situation is different from one country to the other. But we could relate this to what's happening in Asia and ask themselves, uh, ask ourselves if African universities in those countries will now have all the conditions for developing their higher education system, uh, if the model will be in the West mm. or if the partnership will be more natural with one of the Asian countries. Mm. So I think that's probably the next uh, for me, the next interesting question I would like to address. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. So we'll we'll look out for that. Uh, well, I, I really like this pod, this particular interview. I mean, this is right up my uh, research alley, and I and I suggest all the listeners to go out and, and check out the book uh, Asia: The Next Higher Education Superpower. And this is from Dr. Rajika Bandari and Dr. Alessia Lafabure. And uh, thank you for joining me today, uh, Professor, and uh, to all my audience, hope you learned something.